is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And as you know, we love to tell stories about everything, but there's nothing we like to tell stories about more than American music. It's our greatest export, let's face it. And there's no greater music legend than the great Quincy Jones. And here is Jesse Edwards, our resident musicologist, to tell his story. Quincy Jones is one of the most famous record producers in the world. A conductor, a composer, an artist. He's been nominated for the Grammy Awards 80 times, which is more than anyone else on the planet. He was born on the south side of Chicago in 1933. We were in the heart of the ghetto during the Depression. Our uh, biggest struggle every day was... uh, We were either running from gangs or with gangs and was just getting to school and back home because if your parents aren't home all day, you know, it's a a notorious track. The schools were the roughest schools probably in America. I saw teachers getting hurt, maimed and everything every day. And it 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 was everyday stuff. Some summers my father would take us down to visit our grandmother in Louisville who was an ex slave, Susan Jones, and she had a, a Shotgun shack, they call it, and no electricity, a well in the back. Just to say, go down to the river and grab the rats to still have the tails moving. She'd, she'd cook the rats, she takes the greens out of the backyard and uh, cook the greens, fry the rats with onions and so forth in a coal stove. And you'd see like almost ice on the floor at night, you know, when it's cold in the wintertime in Kentucky. Quincy's mother suffered a mental breakdown and was institutionalized before his very eyes. His dad got a divorce, remarried a woman who had three other kids, and moved everyone to Seattle. Soon, the young, street-smart Quincy Jones became active in the school band and quickly started playing in nightclubs. We were playing in nightclubs from the 13 and 14. Just start playing. Just get to do it. Just blow in it and sound bad for about a year, and then you can sound a little bit better. <laughs> And four guys that sound half bad, if you're 25% each, we can get 100%, you know? <laughs> and so Charlie Taylor and Buddy Catlett, four guys, got, we got together, and, and we practiced every day, you know, every day. It was around this time that Quincy met another aspiring young musician that was new to Seattle. That other musician just happened to be the great Ray Charles. I was 14 years old, and Ray came to town from Florida. He wanted to get away from Florida, and he asked a friend of his, because he had sight until he was seven, to take a string from Florida and get him as far away from Florida as he could get. And boy, Lord knows that's Seattle. <laughs> if you go any further, you're in Alaska and Russia. And so Ray showed up, and he was at 16 years old, and he was like, God, you know. He had an apartment. He had a record player. He had a girlfriend, two or three suits. I mean, I, and I used to come, when I first met him, you know, he'd invite me over to his place. I couldn't believe it. He was fixing his record player. He'd shock himself because there were glass tubes in the back of the record player and the radio. And I used to just sit around, I, I can't believe you're 16 and you got all this stuff going. Because he was like, he was 30 then. He was like a really an old dude, you know. He knew how to arrange and everything. And he used to taught me how to arrange in Braille and uh, 
the notes. He taught me how to, what the notes were because he understood. He says the dotted eighth, the sixteenth, that's a quarter note, and so forth. And I just struggled with it and just plowed through it. After being taught how to compose and arrange by Ray Charles at just 14 years old, Quincy Jones was excited to start doing what he loved most for a living. And that's exactly what he did. A little too well. For a kid who is still in high school. 1947, we got our first uh, first job for $7. And the, the year after that, we played with Billie Holiday. You know, with the Bumps Blackwell, Charlie Taylor band. And... We got our confidence was building because we danced and we sang and we played all we played modern jazz we played uh, shottishes, pop music at the white tennis clubs you know room full of roses and to each his own and all those things played the black clubs at ten o'clock you know and played rhythm and blues and for strippers and do comedy and everything else at three o'clock in the morning we'd uh, we'd uh, go down to Jackson Street in the red light district and play bebop free all night because that was really what we really wanted to play, like Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, and Dizzy and all those people. And they'd come through town. And then the following year, Bobby Tucker, who was Billy Holiday's musical director, came back and, and he liked what we did, evidently. And uh, we played with Billy Eckstein. And then Cab Calloway came through. We opened for Cab Calloway, so our confidence was very strong. I had written uh, a suite call from the Four Winds that the university band played before I got out of high school. Kurtz, Gus Mankurtz had a band there and we came, went in from high school and played with the university band and wrote the arrangements and, and the composition and they played it. So, I mean, they knew what was happening. They knew what I was doing. And they put it, I remember they put the picture on the front page of the, the Seattle University paper. Uh, Lionel Hampton heard about this Four Winds thing and he tried to ask me to get join the band when I was 15. I, I hurried up and got on the bus. I didn't want to ask my parents or anybody would take a chance of losing it. And I got there and I just shut up like a little mouse and everybody got on the bus. It was almost ready to take off and Gladys Hampton got on and said, what's that child doing on this bus? And I said, oh my God. He said, Lionel, get that boy off of that. That's just a child. That's not a grown up. Put him back in school. You know, she said, I'm sorry, son, but you know, you're too young. Go back to school. And I was destroyed, you know. And so she says, we'll talk about it later. And when I got my scholarship to Boston, sure enough, uh, this lady, Janet Thurlow, who was in the band, kept reminding of them of me. And they called me one day, and I, I, I was so happy. I'm telling you, you have no idea. And I told the dean there, I said, I'll be back. And he knew I'd never be back. Because once you get out there with professional musicians like that and working 71 nighters in a row, and all through the south, and band bus doing 700 miles a night with these guys that have been out there 30 years, you know, the old guys. I used to watch the old guys. I really respected their wisdom. They knew all the cheap hotels. You know, we made $17 a night. You had to learn how to do that too. And they had wash and wear shirts to carry in the sax case, so I got one of those. And they, when they get in a hotel, we go to Father Divine's for 15 cents, you know, have the stew and stuff and say peace when you go in the door. And you put your pants, fold them up, put your pants underneath the mattress. We couldn't afford to get them clean, pressed. And you put your coat in the bathroom, turn the steam on, hang your wash and wear shirt there, wash your handkerchief, put it on the mirror, <laughs> and the next morning it's dry and you pull it off, it's already pressed, you know. <laughs> and so I learned all these things from these, these, the guys that have been out there. And I just watched. I really paid attention to what was going on. When we return, the life, the music, and the career of Quincy Jones continues right here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories and the life story of Quincy Jones. And we love having these stories come from, well, from the person we're celebrating, their mouth, their voice, with us getting in the way as little as possible. And you heard about Quincy's visits to his grandmother's home in Kentucky and his grandmother, an ex-slave. And Quincy talking about Ray Charles and the two of them in Seattle. Well, one mentoring the other, one teaching the other. Ray teaching Quincy how to read music. And Ray, of course, is blind. Go figure. We continue with Jesse and the story of Quincy Jones. In 1951, Jones earned a scholarship to Seattle University where a young Clint Eastwood, also a music major, watched him play in the college band. After one semester, Jones transferred to what is now the Berklee College of Music in Boston on another scholarship. He left his studies after receiving an offer to tour with Lionel Hampton and embarked on his professional music career. At the age of 19, Jones was on a series of world tours that would last for three years. It turned me upside down in many ways. Uh, It gave you some sense of perspective of past, present, and future. It took uh, the myopic uh, conflict between just black and white in the United States and put it on another level because she saw the turmoil between the Armenians and the Turks and the the Cypriots and the Greeks and the Swedes and the Danes and the Koreans and the Japanese. Everybody (laughs) had these hassles. You saw it was part of, basic part of human nature, these conflicts, and it opened up. It opened my soul, it opened my mind. And I I was challenged to try to learn 20 or 30 words in every language in the world. And I came back to New York after Hamp, freelance, wrote for almost every singer in in the business, and uh, went on a State Department trip in 1956, organized it for Dizzy Gillespie. We toured all over the Middle East and, and South America. Obviously, you know, when they send a black band around the world, as ambassadors, you're going to do a lot of kamikaze work. <laughs> they sent us to all what they call hardship post number four uh, in Washington. That's, they have categories. And then all of the plum jobs are in London and France, the ambassadors and so forth. And USIS and the other parts of the world were pretty screwed up. And uh, so we went to Abadan, Iran, and Tehran, and Dhaka, Pakistan, Karachi, and Istanbul. Damascus, which is the dreariest place in the world. Um, and it was very exciting. Some of these people had never seen Western instruments before. And we got a last-minute call one time from the White House to go immediately from Istanbul and go to Athens, Greece, because the, the, uh, the Cypriot students were stoning the embassy. And uh, whenever that happened, we got called immediately. Go in there <laughs> and play for, the, for, for these same kids. And that, that was pretty scary, because uh, you could feel the energy and the hostility against uh, the, whatever policy was going wrong at that time, whether it was Beirut and Israel or the Cypriots and the Greeks. And after that concert, uh, they, they rushed the stage, the kids, and we thought we were in trouble. And instead, they put Dizzy Gillespie on their shoulders, and they were just running around the auditorium singing to him and everything. This was great. Um, and they sent us to South America. And back uh, 
the United States. Where he was writing arrangements for Sarah Vaughn, Dinah Washington, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Gene Krupa, and Ray Charles, who was by then a close friend. He looked up to them, and they looked after him. They knew I wanted to do whatever I did well. They, they could tell. I, I guess they could feel that. And I, I hadn't gotten it together yet, but they, they knew I wanted to, and they knew one day I would, I guess, you know. I don't know why they'd waste their time otherwise. Count Basie, who almost ad- adopted me, like from 13, he was, became, you know, gradually became, we closer and closer and closer until we ended up playing, I'm conducting for him and, and, and Sinatra, you know. It was just like a dream, you know. For all my life, Count Basie was there. He was like, ooh, man- manager, mentor, father, brother, everything. He just, uh, he helped me get jobs when I had my big band later. And, uh, I remember we played up in New Haven, a job that he didn't want to take. And he said, okay, I got a job for you at band. But, uh, uh, you got it. And so they got the contracts. We were the same agency, Willard Alexander. And we, didn't get, we got a third of what he would get naturally. And uh, uh, it was a 12 or 1300 seat place and only about 700 people showed up. And I was really disappointed and hurt. And I had a big band from New York. Basie showed up, you know, and he said, okay. He said, uh, Give the man half of the money back. I said, what do you mean give the half of the money back? He said, he put your name down front, and the people didn't come. You, he will be uh, important for you in the future, and you shouldn't hurt him because the people didn't come. Give him half of his money back. I gave him half the money back. He only tried to teach me how to be a human being, you know. And uh, a lot of the guys were like that, that, that Oscar Pettiford, you know, that just took me under their wing. And that's why I, I have no problem in... in automatically help young people. I just love it, you know. Benny Carter is one of the finest musicians on the planet. He was my idol. When I went to California, Benny put you on his shoulders, you know, <laughs> give you the target and help you pull the, pull the, 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 the strings, you know, bowstring. Uh, just amazing, uh, you know, that, that means so much, you know. Some guys try to take advantage of you, some don't pay any attention to you, the others embrace you and, and put their arms around you and help you. By 1957, Quincy Jones moves to Paris, where he studies composition and music theory. By the time he gets back to New York, he lands a job with Mercury Records as a musical director for the company's New York division. By 1961, he's promoted to vice president. In 1962, he composed this instrumental, Soul Bossa Nova, People my age recognize it as the theme to the Austin Powers films. Yeah, baby! <laughs> then Frank Sinatra hires Quincy in 1964 to conduct and arrange his second studio album, It Might As Well Be Swing, which opens with Fly Me To The Moon. Quincy Jones composed music on nearly 40 major motion picture scores before leaving Mercury and moving to Los Angeles. In 1978, he produced the soundtrack for The Wiz, the musical adaptation for The Wizard of Oz, which starred Michael Jackson and Diana Ross. By December of 78, he's producing Michael Jackson's first solo album, Off the Wall, which won Jackson his first Grammy for the opening track, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. In 1982, Quincy Jones is producing the score to the film of E.T. At the same time, he's starting work with Michael Jackson's next album, Thriller. In just over a year, it became the world's best-selling album, 
anybody that says they know they're going to sell 104 million albums or whatever it was are lying. You, you don't do that. You make something that you love, man, and makes you get goosebumps. That's what I do. And I don't care if anybody else gets them. The worst thing that would happen to me was to make a record that they say, okay, these people over here like this, these people here like this, they like that. And I go do that, and then they don't like it. And I don't like it either. That's a disaster. No. I want to get something I love, you know. And if I get something, we went to 800 songs to do Thriller, to get nine songs. And then at the end of the road, what we do is once I get those nine songs on their feet, I give a very honest moment with myself and say, okay, in the nine songs, rel relatively, what are the four weakest? It's a hard decision. But you have to really be real. And musically, you know, you know. And you take those four out, and for a lot of them were hits. You know, one was Mike Cimbello had Carousel in there, which we substituted with a, a Human Nature. And we added Lady in My Life, wrote PYT, and added Beat It, and uh, Human Nature. And that together with, with Billie Jean, and don't start in something until it's over, you know, because you got to... And when we return, the life, music, and career of Quincy Jones continues. You can tell that they've got it if you know exactly who they are in the first 20 seconds of their record. Right here on Our American Stories. That came through loud and clear with Michael Jackson. being out 13 or 14 months, went up to a million and a half copies a week in sales for four months, which was number one for 37 weeks. We continue with the life of Quincy Jones here on Our American Stories. And we don't do a lot of hour-long storytelling here on the show, but my goodness, with Quincy Jones's life, you could have done two. We could have. We could have done three. What's remarkable about what we heard before is well, he sifted through 800 songs to find nine for Thriller. And yet in that same segment we just listened to, that remarkable, remarkable composition, Fly Me to the Moon, and the arrangement that he helped put together for that remarkable Sinatra record. And, and Sinatra never, ever swung like he did on that song, on that record. And that Quincy and Frank partnered the way they did, and that Quincy then partnered with someone like Michael Jackson, crossing generations, musical styles, white, black, everything in between. Well, what a life. 
What a story. Let's continue with Jesse and the life of Quincy Jones. When Quincy Jones made his debut as a film producer on The Color Purple in 1985, he was the one who discovered Oprah Winfrey. It was her big break. Oprah's very special to me because, you know, the relationship is like, it's like blood now. It's like she's the same age as my daughter. Outrageous love. <laughs> the best kind because it's, it's, it's not as well you don't only love somebody. You like them and you respect them. He also discovered and cast young Whoopi Goldberg in The Color Purple, which was nominated for 12 Academy Awards. Quincy would later compose the theme song to The Oprah Winfrey Show. And the Bill Cosby Show. In 1985, he produced We Are the World. It was a charity song featuring every musician that Quincy Jones could get his hands on all in an effort to raise money for famine in Ethiopia. A worldwide commercial success, it topped music charts throughout the world and became the fastest-selling American pop single in history. Since its release, We Are the World has raised over $63 million for humanitarian causes. Into the 90s, Quincy Jones became the executive producer for the sitcom The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air when he discovered and cast young Will Smith to take the lead. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down, and I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there, I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel-Air. Jones also wrote the theme song to that show. But so far, we've only scratched the surface of the wide range of musical and creative intensity that is Quincy Jones. In all of his years of writing, composing, arranging, and producing, there's virtually no facet of the music industry that he hasn't been a big part of. It's an obsession, a compulsion, life's greatest pleasure. So far, I haven't found any, any experience that is more pleasurable than, than it takes you three, two nights to sit down at the blank page of score paper and then try to imagine and hear that orchestra sound in your head and put what you think is going to sound like you think it sounds on that paper for each instrument and finally having the orchestra there and when you do the downbeat to hear that sound there's no experience in the world like that still to this day i feel uh, like i'm 12 years old when i bring my hand down in the orchestra even if it's like last night to hear god bless america it's just a miraculous i guess what's so strong about it is that um Outside of you growing as, a, as an arranger or composer or orchestrator, um, it's the idea that when you conduct a symphony orchestra, that 110 people plus the conductor are you're thinking about exactly the same thing at exactly the same town, time, down to the microscopic proportions, the 32nd and, and, and 64th notes. And that's a lot of energy because minds aren't trailing off thinking about the news or, or, or what you've got to, uh, what's in the stock market or anything today or what you have to get for groceries or what's for dinner. It's exactly on what that thought is, the thought of the composer, whoever composed it, and the orchestrator and performing it and, re and re reproducing it. 
and it's a very powerful experience. It's a very rewarding, enriching experience, and it, it, it hits you in your soul. It goes through the air, but it hits the soul. You can't touch it, you can't taste it, you can't smell it, you can't see it, and it's just so powerful for the soul. I think African music is so powerful and probably governs the rhythm of every music in the world is because it's taken straight from nature. You know, you know um, uh, that uh, the birds did not imitate flutes. <laughs> it's the reverse. And uh, 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 thunder didn't imitate the drums. You know, it was the reverse. And so the elements of nature, when it comes from that, that's the most powerful force there is. It's like a melody. You can study orchestration, you can study harmony and theory and everything else, but melodies come straight from God. There's really no technique for melodies, really. And uh, so that's... I guess there's something about music that's always fascinated me, and I apply what the essence of that's about into everything I do, whether we do film or magazines or whatever it is. Uh, uh, you can't touch it, you can't taste it, you can't smell it, you can't see it. You just feel it, and it hangs in the air. It owns, it, it dominates every time period, you know. String quartets had its own time period, and nobody can ever change it because it's hanging up there in heaven someplace. The uh, uh, pulse is, is, they use the 440 to tune up the A, and I, I hear that the pulse of the universe is 454. You know, that's pretty close. And so that A has something to do with much more than just uh, a, a note. You know, it's got something to do with just what the, a natural rhythm of what life is about. Everybody I know that, uh, that, really does their thing and I you know we have a lot I have a lot of friends that are like that and when I see the ones that really do it they're junkies they really are I mean they that thing it takes them over it it takes them it really does and everything there's some kind of subconscious uh, uh, attraction to everything th even things you're not even aware of that you're interested in I mean I, I the, my biggest problem in the world is going into a bookstore because everything, just every subject from psychology to history to, 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 to cuisine, everything in there, I'm interested in. I just love it. And uh, technology or biographies, history, you know, it's, uh, and it does. Somehow all of those things reinforce each other because I studied with Nadia Boulanger in Paris and she said something one time when uh, uh, I, she introduced me to Stravinsky, who she was like a mentor to. And uh, I call him a genius. And she said it was a stupid word. And if it has to be applied, it should be dealt with, applied to somebody that has achieved the highest level of uh, involving sensation, feeling, believing, attachment, and knowledge. And there's all those things, you have to put, all those things have to be pulled together, you know. Uh, and, and the ability to be able to discern that which is important. I mean, that's, and that, that's, 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 that's a big word because it makes you interested in your, your point of view. Uh, uh, Stravinsky always used to talk about, in the poetry music, he always used to talk about the most important part of a, an artist's responsibility is to be a great observer. When we return, the life, music, and career of Quincy Jones continues right here on Our American Stories.
And we return to Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Quincy Jones. And by the way, special thanks to the Academy of Achievement for much of this interview. And they interview some of the great innovators, some of the great artists, some of the great scientists, some of the great military leaders of all time. And it's just raw interviews, and it's there for the public. It's really a remarkable thing they've done at the Academy of Achievement. And go to achievement.org to listen to so many, so many astounding interviews with some of the greatest American innovators and artists of the 20th century. And athletes, too, by the way. And now let's return to Jesse and this final segment in our celebration of the life of Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones was convinced at an early age to explore music by his teenage friend, Ray Charles. He was just an energetic young kid, and he really loved music. That's really what drew us together, you know, because I, I could kind of help him out and show him little things about how to compose. He played in various bands throughout the 50s, began composing for film and television in the mid-60s, and eventually produced over 50 scores, the most Grammy-nominated artist in history. And his early inspirations were some of the greatest musicians who ever lived. I was inspired by a lot of people uh, when I was young, all over the place. Uh, every band that came through town, at the theater or dance hall, I was at every dance, nightclubs, to listen to every band that came through, because in those days we didn't have MTV. We didn't have uh, television, and uh, the communication for music was through Downbeat magazine or the Grapevine, from what was happening in New York. Radio dealt with it a little bit. We used to pick up a few jazz stations from uh, San Francisco, Jimmy Lyons, and you'd hear uh, all of the some of the new music that was out, like jazz. And they had the record stores in those days had big glass booths. And you could go in and listen to the record, put earphones on, and I couldn't afford to buy them, so I just stayed in the music store all day and just listened to all of the latest records. And in those days, they had five record companies, only five record companies, so anybody that was even recording was automatically a giant. On Decca Records, everybody was Louis Armstrong, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, just the greatest musicians that ever lived uh, on each label. So it wasn't too much Russian roulette going on records those days. Whoever was signed and made records was really pretty phenomenal. It's so different today. Everything is different. The, the instruments are different. The experience of jam sessions, the experience of uh, bands playing together and looking in each other's eyes and transmitting thoughts without, with unspoken words, which is an incredible experience, were, were not happening anymore. And where most big producers now, uh, they stay in a little room you take Jimmy and Terry, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, or Babyface and L.A. Reid, or whoever. Uh, they have uh, drum machines and MIDI synthesizers that you can sequence or do anything you want. And there's hardly any contact out with the outside world except maybe two producers, the singer. You may do one live date with strings or brass. And it's just so different. What I see in a lot of young musicians who just want to be famous, very famous and very rich, very quick, 
was a gold and we didn't understand it all in those days because we just, our idols didn't, were not symbolic of that. They, it was Charlie Parker and his people that almost died in poverty and drugs and uh, they didn't have that, they didn't think of opulence or that kind of living, of jet planes and limousines and all those things. Uh, today that's a running thing, it's a huge business now. Huge business where, where uh, very, very young people make enormous amounts of money trying to absorb that kind of uh, uh, adulation and recognition and fame and, and adoration and money. It's a very abnormal situation and, and they're trying to make it normal because it's not normal. And so we have a lot of uh, casualties uh, as a result of that. On the positive side, uh, everything starts with two things, a, a song or a story. And that drives, that drives everything. And that's the people of the blank page, no matter what uh, platform is put on, that's where we have to start. It, it's the, the, the outlets are enormous today. It's on a global level, where it used to take us four years to release a record, that was released in the United States. Four years later, we come out in Europe. It's almost simultaneously now. Maybe sometimes it'll come out uh, 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 internationally before it comes out domestically. And, and the throw of communications is so powerful that just communications alone have changed the course of our, our world. From Tiananmen uh, Square to Berlin Wall to communism, South Africa, everything. Is, they weren't governmental agencies to change it. It was records and television and movies that changed that. Quincy Jones. He gave a commencement speech to the graduating class at the University of Washington, where he received an honorary doctorate. We close our look into the life of this musical genius with his spoken words of advice on music and life. This is Our American Stories. Music. I've found over the years is a powerful, powerful weapon and one of the most powerful cradles of spirituality that you will ever find in this universe. You can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't taste it, you can't smell it, but Lord knows you can feel it. It can lift you up and it can fill you up. Music is the only thing that affects the left and right brain simultaneously. That's why it has so much power. And along with mathematics, it's probably the only other absolute. It's part of our lifeblood. It's like water. It's a healing force that strengthens and soothes your soul. The entire world in the last 90 plus years has accepted our music as their Esperanto. It walked right by kabuki, bagpipes, Viennese waltzes, and German leader, and adopted our music, American music, jazz and blues, as the music that most expresses their souls. But our own music, the full spectrum of our indigenous music, the global gumbo that we invented, is less appreciated and understood in its own birthplace than anywhere else in the world. In a way, it's almost treated like a disposable culture. Answer this, how many rappers, and I know all of them, today know who Duke Ellington and Charlie Parker is? And that's a shame. So I'm begging each and every one of you out there and your other missions in life to become a foot soldier, enlist in an unnamed movement with us all 
that helps us understand and support the entire spectrum of America's music is built on sociology. I deeply appreciate 50 Cent. Tupac, my daughter was engaged to him, died in her arms. Amy Winehouse, Usher, Alicia Keys, Will I Am, Fergie, all the bling, 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 and Benjamins. And I've mentioned many of today's artists. But as much as I love hip hop, I'm not even thinking about giving up Herbie Hancock or John Coltrane or Miles Davis or Charlie Parker or Duke Ellington, Dizzy Gillespie. Count Basie, Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Bond, Ray Charles, Aretha, on and on. I want the whole nine yards. It's all part of us, of gospel, blues, jazz, and everything else. Ask Mick Jagger. I met Mick Jagger in 1961. Made $512 million last year. What is, he's almost my age. <laughs> I want all of it, the whole family of our beautiful music. We must never, 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 ever forget that jazz is the classical music of pop music and always will be. It's the best balance there is between soul and science. It eats everything in its past, and the essence of freedom and liberation from Russia, Voice of America, all those shows we used to do, everybody listened to that message very deeply. I promise you, I promise you, that in less than 20 or 30 years, R, A, B, C, D, and E, Armstrong, Berg, Coltrane, Dizzy, and Ellington will be the three Bs, Brahms, Beethoven, and Bach of America. I promise you. And great work, as always, to Jesse and my goodness to hear that voice coming through the speakers or your earphones or however you're listening to hear Quincy Jones himself talking about life, about music, and about his real passions. And my goodness, his curiosity about everything, talking about being at a bookstore and wanting to devour it all, from history to cooking. Uh, he wanted to read every book in the place. Go to the Academy of Achievement to hear not just this particular interview in its entirety and it's like an hour and 45 minutes straight straight of Quincy Jones but there are dozens of others there too that you'll just not want to stop listening to some of the great innovators inventors athletes coaches leaders all there for you to listen to go to achievement.org that's achievement.org Quincy Jones's story in a way American music story my goodness 80 Grammys. What a life. Quincy Jones's life, his story, here on Our American Story. <laughs> 